listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Last Sunday, when Andrew Coleman was here and serving as our guest preacher, he offered a really important insight into the prophet Jeremiah noting that Jeremiah had been called to speak into an Israel that had lost its spiritual moorings. He was called to warn the people of Jerusalem's impending collapse and destruction. Andrew suggested that Jeremiah's message was coming from a dark, dark tunnel. All that the prophet sees, all the words and insight that come to him, are in this context of his knowing that a once faithful nation was coming off the rails. So here we are again faced with a message spoken out of that kind of darkness by Jeremiah. Words that Walter Brueggemann goes so far as to identify as a dangerous poem. It's dangerous because the poet has the awesome burden of helping his people sense that their presumed world is in jeopardy because God's holy patience is fully ended. Now, there are so many hard words in this passage, words about God's people being foolish, like stupid children, skilled in evil and unable to do good. And there are hard words about the shape of the created world as well. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. Waste and void. In Hebrew, it's tohu wabohu. It's a phrase that occurs in only one other place, in the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. Tohu wabohu, same phrase again. And darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now in that creation story, it's from this formless void that God begins to draw out light and life declaring again and again and again that it is good, it is good, it is good. And now, Jeremiah in this passage dares to say, God has looked and seen a people so derailed that what was once declared as good and very good is now waste and void. It's an uncreation poem that Jeremiah offers, Don't you see what you're doing, he's saying? For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not make a full end. I will not make a full end. For all of the toughness of his message, Jeremiah knows that there will yet be somehow a tomorrow. Yes, he can speak about how things will be plucked up and pulled down, destroyed and overthrown, but he believes, he knows, even from his dark tunnel, that in the end God will again build and plant. 
Well, as is so often the case with these biblical truth-tellers, his message was met with indifference, disbelief, and sometimes some pretty serious hostility. How dare you say such things about us, Jeremiah? We are faithful. We are paying our tithes. We're saying our prayers. We're making our appointed sacrifices. Look at how people stream to the grand temple in Jerusalem. You say it will be destroyed? How dare you? Leave us alone. They're lost, and they don't know it. They prefer to rely on the practices and patterns of the familiar, to trust the status quo rather than to pay any attention to this cranky prophet with his impossible message. But it is the message they most needed to hear to really wake up and be less lost. Now, given that, listen to the opening words of tonight's gospel reading. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors and sinners, they're coming to listen to Jesus teach, which in itself says something not only about what Jesus is saying, but also about his very character, that they were so drawn to him. These are people deemed outsiders and unrighteous by the religious and social status quo of the day, yet they seem all but unable to stay away from Jesus. And all the while, there's the Pharisees and scribes grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's a common theme in the Gospels, of course. People come to Jesus in their need, their searching and their lostness, and it causes those properly religious ones to shudder with disgust. Look who's touching him. Look who's sitting at his feet. Look who he's sharing meals with. No holy man this. Well, in the case of their protest tonight, Jesus responds with a series of parables. We heard two of them, the lost sheep and the lost coin. There is a third the parable of the lost sons, more familiarly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Each of the three parables tells of something lost, a sheep, a coin, a person, and of the joy that comes when the lost is found. The tax collectors and sinners in the crowd must have heard these stories with such relief and delight. There's hope for us, more than hope, there's joy in heaven that we found ourselves in the presence of Jesus. Yet there's also an edge to these parables because they're told in direct response to the hostility of the scribes and the Pharisees. Here, Robert Ferrer Capon comments that the parables are presented as yet another instance of Jesus rubbing the salt of lostness on the sensibilities of those who are preoccupied with the sweetness of their own success. Isn't that a great phrase? He's rubbing the salt of lostness 
on the sensibilities of those who are preoccupied with the sweetness of their own success. Tonight's two short parables are, of course, very familiar. That can make it easy to miss some of what Jesus is playing with here. Which of you, he says, which of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now think about that for a minute. Which one of you, and remember he's got those scribes and Pharisees firmly in view, who lost one of your hundred sheep would not go off in search of the lost one, leaving the 99 alone in the wilderness. Probably not a single one of them, because they'd end up with one found sheep and 99 unattended ones that would wander off and get themselves lost. Not only that, but in the parable, the shepherd finds the sheep and he heads home not back to the flock, he heads home, calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Really? I mean, a shepherd would do that because he'd found one bothersome lost sheep? Not likely. It's not a particularly realistic picture of how shepherding actually needed to work in the wilderness. And Jesus knows it. They all know it. They're not that far from the land. And then comes his punchline. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Righteous people who need no repentance. Again, really? And who are they? Now here, N.T. Wright suggests that we try saying the sentence with a smile and a question mark in your voice. And you will, I think, hear what Jesus intended. Righteous people that have no need of repentance? Hmm. He's making a bit of a dig at them, just as he does when he concludes the parable of the lost coin by saying... There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And by ending the parable of the lost sons, by leaving the elder son, the so-called righteous one who'd behaved so well, standing out in the garden with a big question mark hanging over his head. What Jesus is really trying to do is to get the scribes and the Pharisees, and us for that matter, to understand that we are all in our own way lost. And that admitting that is to be at the same time found again. Again, from Robert Capon. Jesus implies, it seems to me, that even if all 100 sheep should get lost, it will not be a problem for this bizarrely good shepherd because he is first and foremost in the business of finding the lost, not of making a messianic buck off the unstrayed. Give him a world with a hundred out of every hundred lost souls. Give him, in other words, the world full of losers that is the only real world we have, and it will do just fine. Lostness is exactly his cup of tea.
Now, that's great good news. Great good news to know when you experience lostness. As soon as you acknowledge that lostness, you're already being found. And there's rumors of it, even in the writings of that hard-nosed, cranky prophet, Jeremiah. Yes, Jeremiah writes of God's impatience, even of God's fierce anger. But he also knows that all it will take is for the people to admit their lostness. Jeremiah himself feels pretty lost at times in his own writing. To admit their lostness and begin to let themselves be found. So it is with each of us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.